0: pseudoscience it, you know it's kind of like the term communist now there are communists in the world but if you're running in a campaign and you're and back in the 1950s and your opponent supported social security say you could call him a communist he's a communist right. you know <laughs> and uh so it's a flexible term and in in this case and in other cases too it it just means that It's an unpopular idea and many people don't want to deal with it
1: the story is that science and religion are at odds that they are incompatible or at least that they rely on distinct methods of knowing and ne'er the twain shall meet yet throughout history still today many scientists are believers in god or ascribers to a religion how do they deal with the apparent contradiction and how do their peers deal with them? Today, we discuss the curious but not uncommon case of being a scientist and a believer. I'm Joel Ackerman. This is Lightwise. Michael Behe is an American biochemist, author, and an advocate of the controversial principle of intelligent design. He is a professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, and is a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He is also a devout Catholic with nine children. Michael, welcome. Let's start now talking about intelligent design. Can you explain what
0: this idea is, and is it different from creationism? Sure. Intelligent design is simply the uh, idea that you can tell that some things were purposely done by uh, being with a mind, by an intelligent agent. And we do that all the time in our everyday life. We see... Uh, Uh, we see pictures that were painted and so on. We know that they were purposely designed. But in particular, in science, it means that we could argue that parts of nature were purposely designed or arranged by an intelligent being. And yes, that's different from creationism. And I would say that intelligent design is to creationism as the Big Bang Theory is to the book of Genesis. You know, the book of Genesis says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." Well, okay, that, that's that's wonderful, and many people believe that. But a scientist is supposed to go out and look for physical evidence in nature and draw his conclusions or her conclusions from that. And the Big Bang theory uses data from galaxies that are receding from each other, and as if in the aftermath of a giant explosion. And so the Big Bang Theory, even though many people, including many scientists, thought it had religious implications, is built exclusively on empirical data plus ordinary reasoning. Same thing with intelligent design. Uh, Intelligent design goes out and says, well, what do we see in nature? You know, uh, scriptures might say, well, God made plants and animals. Okay, well, that's great. But what do we see in nature? What, how are things arranged? And intelligent design argues that because of the complexity and functionality that we have found, especially at the molecular and cellular foundation of life, the best explanation for that is that it was purposely designed by an intelligent agent. Okay. So um, is it
1: necessarily um, religious in nature or... or- Is there any other intelligent agent other than God uh, who could be pulling the strings here?
0: Well, uh, that's an excellent question. And as far as intelligent design itself goes, the conclusion, it doesn't go there. We can conclude by looking at the fantastic molecular machines that have been discovered in the cell that somebody must have arranged them. And certainly most people, myself included, will think that God is a great candidate for that role. Sure. But if somebody wants to think it was a space alien from, <laughs> from uh, another planet, which some people have approached me and said that, that that's what they think, I can't point to any physical uh, structure in biology and say that they were wrong. Uh, if somebody wants to say it was a being from another dimension or a time traveler or something really weird, uh, I can't go there. So uh, I should say that intelligent design simply says that these things were arranged. It doesn't say anything about properties of God that philosophy has normally ascribed uh, to him, like omniscience and uh, eternality and... sure. Uh, Okay, fascinating. So, so let's go back to intelligent
1: design. How is this theory received in the scientific community?
0: Uh, well, um, you got to make some distinctions. First of all, it's generally the loudest voices that make the biggest splash, and most scientists fit the terio- stereotype of hanging out in their labs and being quiet and attending to their work. Uh, nonetheless. Um, Intelligent design is, is very controversial. And many scientists, if not most, just hate it, hate it to pieces. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but that's okay. Again, I, uh, as I mentioned, the Big Bang Theory was opposed specifically because it had religious implications back in the day. More interesting to me is not whether they like it or not, is whether they have any arguments against it. And do they? Well, they they say stay stuff, (laughs) but I've been been, uh, doing this for 25 years now, and nobody has explained or uh, countered the arguments that I initially wrote about 25 years ago, at least in my humble opinion.
1: Okay. We're going to get to what you wrote about in a second. Um, First, let's talk about the scientific community at large. So I've seen uh, numbers ranging anywhere from 50% to a full uh, 93% of scientists in the U.S. who do not believe in a God or higher power, meaning anywhere from 50% to 7% do believe. Um, If you were to guess, uh, just based on your experiences in the uh, community— do you think it's closer to 50% or 7% of scientists who do believe in a higher
0: power? Yeah. I would think it's closer to 50%, maybe even more, that believe in a higher power. Uh, some do that uh, without specifically believing in God or a Christian, uh, Christian or monotheistic religions. Sure. And uh, it's when you get, but when you get to the higher categories of science or the more prestigious scientific institutions like the National Academy of Sciences, that's where the numbers percentage goes down to seven ish percent or so. But you have to keep in mind those seven percent don't have any other data that isn't available to the 50 percent who do believe in God. Right. And so why so why the difference?
1: Why with prestige is the is there an outside pressure that
0: Sort of kinda, yeah. I, I, I think I think I think each profession has kind of a professional hazard. For example, with lawyers, I think they a lot of them are alcoholics. Okay. <laughs> with actors and, and Directors and folks in Hollywood, you know, it's it's egotism and that's a professional. Alcoholism and (laughs) drugs and many other things that has a broad reach. (laughs) And with scientists, I think atheism is a professional hazard. Not so much that they've given it more thought than the philosophers and theologians and other folks throughout the ages, but that they think that by gum. They're going to explain everything. You know, I'm, I'm not going to let some pastor, uh, you know, tell me what happened. I'm going to do it, and so it's more of a reaction, uh, more of uh, how they see themselves in society than it is a good argument. Yeah, to me that seems like egotism again. Mm, yeah.
1: <laughs> right? Because yeah, it it yeah. seems it seems like uh, a form of I I know. Uh-huh. I know best,
0: yes, uh-huh. I
1: know more than you, yes, um, so that's interesting that in the in the prestigious circles, that number drops way down, yeah, I think that's worth some scientific yeah. exploration <laughs> or <laughs> surveying or something um, It is interesting that the numbers differ so widely um from the general u s population uh Gallup did a poll. This year that said still eighty one percent which is down actually it's down six percent so mm-hmm. it's a significant drop but still eighty one percent of Americans believe in God mm-hmm. and uh or some higher power and um, it's interesting that the scientific community is substantially less okay. and, and and is this is the same idea that that it's a I think so. Professional Uh, hazard? I think
0: so, because if you look at other scientifically trained professions, such as engineers or physicians, medical doctors, the numbers for that are much higher. So again, I think it's just the way scientists view themselves and their work, that science, by gum, our our folks, we're going to explain everything. Uh, So there's that temptation to assume that, that they don't need any other explanation for reality. And when do you trace this
1: happening? So one of the things that I find interesting, you know, I, I love to peruse classic literature, and as I've read uh, Copernicus uh, and Kepler, mm-hmm. I haven't read a lot, but I but you know I I read the introductory chapters. A lot of scientists, big respectable name. Brand name scientists were believers in God. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering when did this uh kind of conflict between science and religion happen? Was it Darwin? And and is it your belief that um that scientists like Kepler or Copernicus or others who believed in God, do you think Any of these uh, ideas that seem to challenge, or that popularly are conceived as challenging the notions of God, um, that had they known
0: these things in their time, that that they would have lost their faith. Oh, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's cumulative uh, over history, as as you indicate. And a big step, I think, was when Darwin published Origin of Species. But even well before that, during the Enlightenment in the 1600s, 1700s, and so on, I think as science advanced, what people saw was that, hey, we got these laws and we can discover laws and we can see how nature works before we we hadn't had the foggiest idea. So, hey, you know we don't need no stinking God (laughs) (laughs) to explain this stuff. And, you know, it's interesting that there are laws, you know, Newton's laws. You can all predict how a cannonball is going to fall. Uh, But it's a category mistake to say then that, you know, that the universe arose by itself, that the universe designed itself, and, and all these other existential Questions that philosophers and theologians had been talking about for a long time. I think I think uh, people, including scientists, kind of got intoxicated by their ability to predict things and design machines and and improve life. Yes, but. Uh, but kind of lose their perspective along the way.
1: Yeah. So to me, it goes back to, to egotism or a sense of pride. Uh, look at
0: all that we've done and yeah, accomplished and learned. Yeah. Look at this cell phone here. I got. <laughs> right. You know, how can you believe in God when you've got this cell phone here? <laughs> Which is interesting, right?
1: Because a lot of people would say the exact opposite, right? Look at look at what uh, what God has inspired. Right? This yes. is evidence. I eat applesauce, and I oh. go, there must be a God. This is so <laughs> right. delicious. Yeah. There must be a God. Yeah. Um, so, and, and a cell phone, theoretically, should be more delicious than applesauce, though, <laughs> though I would argue that point. Going back to the scientific community, how do scientists respond to people in faith in general?
0: And, and, then, and then specifically to people in their own field. Well, uh, again, it, there's lots of scientists and there's a range of uh, of reactions. And many folks are, you know, live and let live types. You know, they think they are right in their unbelief, just as we think we're right in our belief. So, okay. But it's the squeaky wheels that get, get the grease and the attention. And there are a f- number of folks in the scientific community who can't tolerate religious believers uh, they do tolerate some but they don't can't tolerate ones who say who say things like well i think that scientific evidence does point to something beyond nature as an explanation for it that's that's when you that's the third rail when you really get into trouble if you say something like that and it's kind of like uh if somebody uh violates political correctness in culture at large. Most people don't care, la, 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 live and let live. But if somebody starts shouting and yelling, then now you, who don't have a dog in the fight, are said, okay, what do you think? And if you come down on the wrong side, then people are going to come after you. So you'll go along with it. And is it the people who uh, don't believe like are the str-
1: strong in their unbelief as you said or is it um believers who don't want to be thought uh unreliable who uh feel that that religion and science should be separate who are those squeaky wheels that that well, speak up <laughs> um
0: generally it's the it's the um, Uh, It's the very anti-religious folks who make the initial noise. But then when the spotlight starts to come on the audience and specifically religious scientists or scientists at religious universities and colleges, uh, they have to say what they think. And many think it's the better part of valor to say that, no, we shouldn't. Make claims about whether scientific data point beyond nature, or, or otherwise make things uncomfortable for, for the majority of scientists. Interesting. Um, do you feel like
1: only when the, the the scientist points to a a scientific evidence toward an intelligent being or something like that is where the antagonism comes out, or is it ever just? you believe therefore you're an idiot is there any yeah.
0: is there any antagonism there where, if yeah. for just having the belief yeah there is i'm afraid and there was actually an incident so i'm not sure now 10 years or so ago francis collins who until recently was the director of national institutes of health he was first nominated to to that position 10 years or so ago and a few scientists wrote an opinion piece that was published in the New York, New York Times saying that because he's a Christian, because he's a religious believer, he is an unreliable person to have had the NIH. And that was the only argument they offered. Not You know, Francis Collins is uh, essentially a perfect example of a, what, what is called a theistic evolutionist who says, well, yeah, everything happened the way... Uh, Mainstream science says, but God was behind it somehow and and doesn't make any waves other than saying, I believe in God, but that was intolerable for some folks. Uh, And while folks like that are not uh, the majority right now, they set the tone so that you have to be on your toes. If Francis Collins could be called on the carpet by some folks You know, you at some lesser, in some lesser position are certainly much more vulnerable than him. Let's talk about your book and Mm -hmm. and the ideas that you've put forth
1: that support this idea of intelligent design. So your book is called Darwin's Black Box um, and introduces this idea of irreducible complexity Can you explain what this concept is? Tell us a little bit about your book. Explain the concept and and its relevance in this discussion.
0: Okay, yeah. uh, Let me just uh, explain the overarching theme first, that the black box of that title, Darwin's black box, is the cell. Black box is a term that is used in science to mean something that does something really cool, some system or machine, but you don't know how it works. Okay. Because you can't see inside the box. Sure. It's invisible to you. Okay. And to Darwin and to everybody of his era, the cell was a black box. They couldn't see it. Their microscopes weren't powerful enough. uh, And they thought that it was probably just a little piece of jelly, you know, protoplasm, they called it. No big deal. But – In the 150 years since Darwin published his work, science has discovered that the cell is humongously complex, sophisticated beyond anything we ever expected. What's more, it's filled with literally machines, machines made out of molecules that use force and motion to to get the jobs of the cell done. Now it turns out one property of machines is that they oftentimes have a number of different parts and if you take one away it's broken. Right. And in my box in my book I used an example of, of just a mouse trap an ordinary mechanical mousetrap that has a spring and a hammer and a couple other parts and if you take one away it doesn't work doesn't work. And I I made up a term called irreducibly complex because I just kind of liked how that sounded. <laughs> and it, it just, sounds like a
1: good scientific yeah, principle, yeah.
0: but it just means that it just means that you've got the machine. It needs all these parts. Take one away, it you it breaks. So it's irreducible and it's complex because it has a number of parts. All machines are like that. Not only mousetraps, but all machines, including the machines that science has discovered in the cell. Uh, and I give a number of examples. But the, <clears throat> but the um, importance is that Darwin's theory has to proceed in tiny, tiny steps. He always said that evolution has to proceed by small steps uh, in, over long periods of time, slowly improving a system until it gets to, uh, until it gets to what we see. But if you think about it, how are you going to make a mouse trap in small steps? You start with say just the wooden base, that doesn't catch any mice. Right. You put another piece on, it still doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything until pretty, pretty much the whole system is together. Right. So the importance of irreducible complexity is, is twofold. Number 1, it's a big challenge to Darwin's gradualism. And number 2, In a machine, you see that parts are arranged in order to perform a function. And that's what I call a purposeful arrangement of parts. And it turns out that is exactly how we recognize the work of a mind. When we see this has been put here and that has been put there, we say, huh, somebody must have done that. That's that's not an accident. So it's a pointer to intelligent design and it's a stumbling block. For Darwin's theory,
1: yeah. So, can you give an example? Maybe the uh, cell with the flagellum uh, mm-hmm. example of this idea.
0: Sure. Um, there, as I said, uh, the cell is literally filled with molecular machines, and and uh, a really wonderful example is something called the bacterial flagellum, which is literally an outboard motor that cells use to swim. It's got a motor and it's got a propeller which spins round and around and the propeller is attached to the rotor by something called the U-joint, which acts as a universal joint to allow the, the rotation of the rotor to change its plane so that the propeller uh, spins in a different plane. And the uh, motor is attached to uh, something called a stator, which is like a clamp that keeps it in place in the cell membrane. And uh, there are dozens of different parts, all of which are necessary for this machine to work. So the point is, like a mousetrap, it's irreducibly complex and it's it's a big problem for Darwin's theory and also is, you know, an astoundingly purposeful arrangement of parts, which is a very strong pointer to intelligent design. Uh, it's very, very important to keep in mind that science is a subset of reasoning. It's a subset of rationality. It is not rationality itself. It relies on logic and uh, and reasoning and mathematics, which is not an empirical uh, discipline and all sorts of things. Uh, one of which is real- the, the recognition that reality exists, that we're not solipsistic minds in vats and things. Right. <laughs> um, so the reasoning behind intelligent design that whenever we see a purposeful arrangement of parts, we recognize that it is the work of another mind. Yeah, we see that all the time. Uh, and uh, engineers could tell you all about that. That when they design things, they put things together uh, for a purpose. And there are you know disciplines like uh, like archaeology that look for artifacts that they recognize that they suspect might be have been made by intelligent beings, by ancient humans or something. Right. And they recognize them by inscriptions or marks or parts that have been arranged for uh, some purpose. So, yeah, and it's uh, one, I sh- should add that one extremely basic facet of rationality is that other minds exist, that is, I'm not the only mind, and your hallucination and all of right. this is too. And it turns out that that's the way we recognize that other minds exist. We can't read minds, we can't read thoughts. The only way we recognize the work of another mind is by physical uh, physical effects. And so, when the physical effects, if we see that some physical things are arranged for a purpose, and we're good at recognizing purposes because minds have purposes and nothing else does, then we conclude that another mind has acted. So that's, that's part of the argument of, of uh, intelligent design. Okay. You personally
1: have uh, testified in several court cases um, related to this issue of intelligent design. What's the nature, what do you, what do you what, why do they bring you in? What's the nature of your testimony in these court cases?
0: Well, they generally bring me in because I wrote books, and so I'm a public advocate for it, so I'm I'm out of the closet. So uh, I, I can uh, testify and not ruin my reputation because it's already in tatters. <laughs> <laughs> and pretty much when I get there, I just say what I've been saying here, that intelligent design is uh, based on empirical evidence, and that is the machinery found in cells, and uh, it's based on ordinary reasoning that when we see parts arranged for a purpose, then uh, we can conclude that uh, it's the um, work of a mind. And I also, crucially, testify that, in fact, the scientific community has absolutely no explanations for these things— and i go over the scientific literature and show that there are no papers that go in in a testably detailed way showing how darwin's mechanism of random mutation and selection could have produced any of these guys and i should add that and again in the 25 years since my first book came out still even though lots of scientists hate this idea and are Highly motivated to try to discredit it, nobody has been able to explain the the uh, machinery of the cell in a Darwinian fashion.
1: And is their their argument well? It's not worth our time, or or do they legitimately own up to the fact that they don't have a uh, explanation?
0: Well, they have a number of arguments. Number one is that they say, "Yeah, in the future we'll figure it out." Sure, we don't have anything now, but and you can't argue against a theory from the future. Right, right. So they say, well, when I wrote Darwin's Backbox, they they said, give us 20 years. Then (laughs) what? Well, it's been 25 years now, (laughs) and there hasn't been any progress. And other people say, yeah, well, let's, you know, here's how Darwinian process might have produced a bacterial flagellum. But if you read it and and you know what to look for, it's kind of like, uh, them explaining how the elephant got its trunk. Uh, just like R- Roger Kipling's Just So Stories, right. they're fanciful tales and they aren't testable and nobody has tested them. And if you're the least bit skeptical, they fall apart.
1: Interesting. Okay, so you testify uh, publicly to these ideas. What was the most significant or, or widely publicized court case that you've uh, testified in?
0: Well, there was a court case in, two, in the year 2005 uh, at a, the school board of a town in Pennsylvania called Dover, which is, isn't too far from Harrisburg, the state capital. They liked the idea of intelligent design. And so they put a book called Of Pandas and People in the library, in the school library. And they sent a message around to all school or all the students in the school saying that here's a book in the library that explains things differently from Darwin's theory. And this was intolerable for some people to have this book in a library. And so the ACLU sued on behalf of some parents. The
1: ACLU Uh, sued.
0: Yeah, the ACLU. Mm (laughs) And, it seems um, like a freedom of speech issue. Well, so, so you know, well, it's a, a public school, so there you got this government. Is the government they their government agents? The school board. Okay. And um, and it turns out that in you know there was a federal trial uh, for, lasted you know six weeks or so. Really crazy for a, uh, one book in a in a library, but it turns out that. The members of the school board, many of them were young earth creationists, and that they took up collections at their church to buy the book to put it in the library. So they did have religious motives for putting that in. So that's okay. So the judge ruled that, you know, they couldn't do that so that the school board lost. I see. Where he went over the edge, as far as I'm concerned, is that he also ruled that intelligent design is a religious theory, that it's not scientific, and that it's pretty much the same thing as creationism. And um, that's interesting, and it was a public relations problem for ID, but if you go and look at the judge's written opinion, he essentially copied it from the ACLU document that was submitted to him after the trial was over, and there's absolutely no evidence that he even comprehended any of the scientific or for that matter philosophical or theological arguments yeah. that were presented so you shouldn't let a judge a judge's ruling decide things right for that seems silly
1: that the what why was it even necessary to make that kind of i mean as you said if he sees that hey, there was religious motivations and yeah. that violates some stipulation, then that's one thing. But why would it be necessary for him to say, plus the idea itself is religious?
0: Well, because they asked him to. <laughs> and he, he yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I don't know, but he, uh, during the trial, was uh, very happy to bask in the publicity and it got a lot of publicity back back in the day there were reporters from all over the world yeah. that came to Harrisburg for the trial uh so maybe he just wanted to make a bigger splash than he otherwise would right well
1: leave it to that's human nature so mm. i think that's very possible and and you can always leave it to government to overstep its bounds <laughs> yeah um uh, okay so the the claim by uh Certainly, this judge and many other scientists and people is that this idea is uh, pseudoscience, which is an official term. that That uh, the definition here is pseudoscience consists of statements, beliefs, or beliefs or practices that claim to be both scientific and factual, but are incompatible with the scientific method. And at least uh, Wikipedia considers intelligent design <laughs> one of these ideas or that it's been suggested that it's pseudoscience. Um, how do you respond to that? And, and, and why do people say this? Well, it's hard to
0: argue against Wikipedia, I have to, <laughs> I have to admit. But, um, well, a pseudoscience is a term of opprobrium that one throws at things that you don't like. Uh, Certainly, there are charlatans out in the world that have snake oil, and they say that, you know, this was tested and and it wasn't. And, okay, you can call that pseudoscience. But, you know, some people thought that the Big Bang was pseudoscience, too, or bordered on that. And if you look at the history of science, you see a lot of things that we would reject right away these days, like uh, phrenology – was a reputable science back in the 1800s and that phrenology is the study of the shapes and bumps on a person's skull right. to see how intelligent they are and what their personality is like and it's it's crazy. Uh, and on the other hand, you'd find things that were believed by the whole uh, scientific community that nobody believes today. Uh, so... so pseudoscience, you know, it's kind of like the term communist. Now, there are communists in the world, but if you're running in a campaign and you're back in the 1950s and your opponent supported Social Security, say, you could call him a communist. He's a communist, you know. (laughs) And uh, so it's a flexible term. And in in this case and in other cases too, it, it just means that It's an unpopular idea and many people don't want to deal with it. It seems like
1: your uh, theories punch holes in Darwin's theories or laws and... Anything that and 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 Darwin seems to be the the holy Bible of scientists in a lot of ways, yeah. mm-hmm. and and therefore they don't like it, mm-hmm. and therefore they call it pseudoscience.
0: Do you agree with that? Yeah, that that's right. They, they they think this is beyond the pale. Everybody knows that Darwin explained it, or if he didn't, we'll figure it out some some other time. But th- this is just so retro. This is so fourteenth century, or, or so on, and and uh, but there are no. Arguments. There is no experiments. Uh, they don't like it. Interesting. Okay, so let's ask a big
1: uh, kind of philosophical question. So, as a scientist, do you believe God is discoverable? Do you believe that um, that there is a possibility of proving beyond a reasonable doubt? the
0: existence of God, or a higher power. I think God is discoverable, but I think it's on a very basic level. Look, there's stuff here. You know, where did this stuff come from? You know, there's a world. You know, where did this world come from? And folks who have thought about it, philosophers over the ages say, well, worlds and matter, nothing explains itself. You need a sufficient cause to explain this. So this is Thomas Aquinas's first cause and and so on. I, I think those, I find those arguments persuasive, even biblically. You know, um in the Old Testament, people were always saying, Why well, look at the stars and look at you know how the oceans are, and you know, this, you know, it shows the power of God. I I agree, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. So uh Does that
1: contradict Paul's statement that spiritual things must be discerned spiritually? Or is what you're talking about, this idea that you could look at a tree or the oceans or the stars, is that a spiritual discernment to say, it's incredible, therefore it yeah. must be God?
0: Well, I think you can make distinctions. I, I think looking at at matter and worlds and stuff and thinking there had to be cause for that, I think that's philosophical, not so much spiritual. I think if you say, if you pray, you know, God, what do you want me to do with my life? How can I serve you? That's discerning spiritual things spiritually. If you look at Mount Rushmore and you say, that's not an ordinary mountain, that was purposely designed, that's scientific, that's empirical, because you're just looking at physical evidence and using normal rules of logic to decide that some other mind was involved in this. So go, let's go back to this idea of people who pray, people who pray and
1: experience God. Either they feel inspired to do something, or maybe they feel forgiveness of sins, or they experience God uh, spiritually. Um, and there seems to be huge numbers of people who do. Um, But then you also have, I would say, a much smaller number of people throughout time. In the Bible, we have cases. Then you have cases of people sharing that they see God. Um, What do you make of those experiences? Are they worth anything when you have such vast numbers having this experience? And certainly you have people from many different faith traditions who say the same thing, which creates a, a Uh, conflict, right? Uh But when you have, if, if, uh, if you have these cases of people who have seen God or, uh, prophets and other types, what do you make of that? And, And is that worth anything in the scientific community? And, and, uh, and, and why not?
0: <laughs> and why is it, and why isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, I think it's certainly a datum, and I, to each person who experiences that, it's, it's, you know, can be powerfully persuasive and can overcome any other, you know, personal experiences. Is sure. is, is great, uh, but if you're a scientist, you know, a lot of people experience it. Some people don't. Here's, I think, a big problem with uh, science as it's practiced today. Science, as it's often practiced today, especially if you get into an argument with somebody, they'll say that science has to to start with the assumption that the universe is closed, that nature is a closed system. Therefore, if you run across a person who says that God answered my prayer or God spoke to me or something— They'll say, number one, you're mistaken. You might be delusional. Let's look for a natural cause for that. Well, maybe, you know, over evolutionary time, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they'll try to construct a, another explanation, which may or may not have any evidence to support it, but they will not allow for, uh, for a, an explanation that goes beyond just nature. I should say also that it's not just religion. It turns out that even minds, even just the the idea that we can think, that we can decide, that we can have uh, judgments and so on, that is under attack uh, in many areas of science, too. There are some scientists who quite literally argue that we don't have minds, that we are filled with memes or some... uh, And they'll, you know, give you an evolutionary just-so story. Yeah. But it's not simply... One shouldn't get get the idea that it's only theology... That is under attack. It's humanity is under attack. So they're just
1: saying it's it's just electrical. Is it the old? It's just electrical activity. Right. It's not true consciousness. Exactly. Nothing shy of a uh, of a organic computer.
0: Yes, and, and in a wonderfully self contradicting way, they'll say that your consciousness is just an illusion. And you ask an illusion, and what? And they'll say, and they won't say anything. They'll just wave their hands. But yeah, so it's it's your it's humanity really that's under attack,
1: isn't it? Again, egotistical to think that what we now understand uh, is not going to be challenged by what we later will discover.
0: Um, Yeah, it sure is, and if you. Asked most scientists, they would quickly agree. It's just that uh, they'd have to reflect upon it first. (laughs) There is a wonderful story in the late 19th century where a physicist said that pretty much everything about the world has been discovered. And (laughs) that was before Einstein's theory and quantum mechanics and all sorts of things like that. So there is no doubt that the universe and nature has lots of tricks that we haven't discovered yet. But suppose we discover more laws or more theories and so on. That does not negate the fact that uh, the universe had a beginning, that we have minds, that these fantastic machines reside in the cell, and that DNA carries information that is coded, and, and all of these things strongly pointing to a mind. So the point is that Uh, science has discovered all these things in the past hundred years and uh, look at them objectively, as of course I do, uh, then you say these are all pointing strongly to the conclusion that nature does not explain itself. Something outside of nature is necessary to explain it. And yet the old materialism uh, slash scientism, positivism kind of Plods along, you know, by intellectual inertia, and so one can really say, you know, ask what's what is necessary to shake these these folks up.
1: You looked at riot at the dance, yes, um, which is a nature documentary distributed by Angel yeah. Studios, and uh, it confirms that all creation was intentionally and beautifully created by a creator. Um, for those of you who are interested, you can watch that at angel.com slash watch. Um, you're presenting evidence for, uh, intelligent design. They are doing something different, which is basically just straight up affirming the hand of God, mm-hmm. uh, in that without necessarily presenting evidence or a reason for it. um, do you have a problem with that or?
0: or No, I, I think that's great. Uh, I, I think that just showing people nature and the wonderful things that the fantastic uh, inoculates people uh, from later arguments that, oh, it was a big accident. People say, you must be crazy to think this eagle flying over here is the result of random changes and a selection. Um, and people, as I've said, can... Easily determine design from the purposeful arrangement of parts. And you can tell that with a bird and a fish, as well as again with a flagellum. Uh, and the fact that you have other things at lower levels of life does not contradict the fact that you can determine design at higher levels, too. My work is simply directed at uh, countering Darwinism and showing that it's essentially, it's, it's, uh, turtles all the way down, that you can't get away from the problems that everybody throughout history saw uh, in trying to explain life by non-intelligent causes. You can't get away from them by positing, well, at lower levels, you know, things went slowly and gradually. You know, it, it gets worse at lower levels. But I think for most people— you know, don't follow along the biochemistry nearly as well as with the wonderful uh, nature studies that occur in the riot and the dance. So yeah, I, I think both of them have have their place. And I think that is uh, appeals to a much wider audience than my stuff does <laughs> <laughs> how how do you feel other you know some of
1: those antagonistic scientists would view ru- the riot of the dams
0: oh that's a push tosh we know about dna we we know how that all evolved you know we talk about gene duplication and uh, but then if you get again those are just so stories they think they know cuz they have this model in their mind and they can Think up some vague uh, scenario, but as they say, the devil is in the details. And if you push them, nobody has a clue how any major changes in life occurred. Uh, by nobody has even proposed how Darwinian processes could change a reptile into a mammal. Let alone, you know, uh, uh, you know, produce a bat versus a whale versus right. other such things.
1: So I've got one one more um, kind of idea that is popularly thrown around, and I want to know if if it holds any merit. And then that's the popular idea that that uh, you can't prove love exists either, right? Have you heard this idea where people say, "Well, you can't see love; you can't, you know, uh, it's it's not a physical thing, and and therefore empirically you can't prove that love exists." Is that Comparable to the idea of God, or is that a terrible argument?
0: Uh, No, I I think that's a a great, great uh, argument. I I think it's a great um, topic because love, as properly as uh, always thought of in the past, is not a physical thing. It's you know your mind and your soul and your uh, emotions are. You know you commit them to another person and you will do things for them and and, and so on. If science it rules out any non-physical uh, phenomena, then it's got to explain love somewhere else, no matter whether that's right or wrong. So uh, science might say, well, endorphins, well, you know, right uh, these hormones, blah, blah blah. blah. Uh, But nobody takes that seriously as an explanation for love. Uh, So I think it's wonderfully uh, apt as kind of another example of this where science has kind of put itself into a box, puts itself into a box because it originally, it thought it would make better progress if it ruled out different questions and concentrated on physics. But now it's mistaken the box for reality, and it wants the problem with our age is that it wants everybody to agree that that is reality, and, right. and that essentially is is an attack on humanity. Thank you so much, yeah.
1: Michael, for this insightful discussion. We are uh, so grateful to you sharing your experience. We hope that science opens its mind to some of these uh, ideas that you've shared with us today.
0: Thanks very much, I've had a grand time. It was a wonderful conversation. Lightwise is a video podcast
1: production of Angel Studios, released every other Tuesday. If you'd like to watch episodes of Lightwise, download the Angel app wherever you get your apps. Also, to make sure you don't miss The Riot and the Dance, Angel Studios' upcoming nature documentary series acknowledging the hand of a creator. Download the Angel app now. This episode was written and directed by me, Joel Ackerman, produced by Cameron Jackson and L. Mullins, and edited by Cameron Jackson, with sound mixing by Brian Densley, and additional sound recording by Louise Laffey.